Uh, I want to pause here and give a shameless plug to the Discovering Membership class that starts when the other Disciple Life classes start. It's one of the joys I have to lead and facilitate the membership class. So if you're new to First Baptist Church here or online, or you've been uh, worshiping with us a while, been praying and thinking about being part of this family, or maybe you just have questions, that's the way to get those questions answered. Signed up for, sign up for that class, Discovering Church Membership. Uh, also, I'm glad I was here this morning, and you were too. We heard something said that you may never hear said in church again. The simple sentence, we're losing focus because of that unicorn. Isn't that great? It's, what a memorable thing to hear. We're losing focus. And I was thinking, when, when, when Miss Jane said that, kids, I, made, I really had to think about all of us. What makes us lose focus? What is it that distracts us from what God is trying to tell us or teach us in the moment? So, hey, right now, be sure none of those distractions are around. And if you're online with us, uh, uh, push away those distractions. Any unicorns in the room, push them out of the way. Make sure that you're tuned in to what God wants to say to you, and I do want to echo what Pastor Mike said earlier. Hey, if you're if you've been live streaming, I'm glad that we can do that. But if you're live streaming rather than in person, and it's time to come back in person, uh, you know that because you're live streaming only out of convenience. And if that's you, let God speak to your heart about that. It's time to come back. It's time to be in person. Now you might have health reasons, other reasons. We all understand that. But if it's just a matter of convenience. Well, it's time to take off your PJs and come back to church. Well, take off your PJs and put on some clothes and come back to church. <laughs> Being a pastor, uh, I have the joy to minister to folks in all stages of life. And, and many folks transition in and out of First Baptist Church over the years. God brings folks here. God takes folks away. And we acknowledge that. So I don't really point out everyone along the way. We miss folks that have been with us. And God will bring us new folks along the way too. But Sarah and Brett Hickman have been called away. And next, next weekend is your last Sunday with us. And I want to mention that. For one, one thing, because uh, thank you for your contribution to the community uh, and for your impact on the community. We appreciate that very much. Uh, and to give you an idea how God works, going, they're going to Anderson University, a uh, football program which is brand new there, a great Christian university that I taught at as an adjunct when I served as a pastor in South Carolina. Back then it was Anderson College. Uh, isn't it great how God works and just, just puts us where we need to be to make an impact for Christ? Also, um, it's a reminder of just how much fun moving is, right? Isn't it fun to pack your stuff? And you never know how much stuff you have until you have to pack it. And if you're in this room, you've lived in the same house your entire life, you're 83 and a half, God bless you. But those of us who have packed and moved once, twice, three times, or 11 or more, like me and my wife, let me tell you something. You get rid of stuff. It's just, you just, you realize, you know what, I don't really need that. Because I, I don't need to take up space for that. Moving is, is, a, is a, it's both frustrating and it's exciting. Because you never know what God's going to do in the next place you go. And especially when you know he's taking you there. And that's the thing about moving under God's direction, literally physically moving, is because uh, you, you know there's, he, he's got plans for you. 
He's got things out there, people you're going to meet, people you're going to impact, things he wants you to do, the church you're going to be a part of if you're moving away from here, or, or the, being a part of this church if you're moved, moving here. All kinds of things that God knows and reveals in his timing. That's why it's so important to trust God for what you do not see. Trust God for what you do not see. We continue in our series this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. Last week we looked at Noah, that man of God that built the ark and who acted in faith on obedience, faith in trusting God for what he could not see. And this morning uh, we transition to the first time the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11 describes the faith of Abraham, the great father of our faith. Uh, there's two reasons in the Bible that, that Abraham is so important to all believers at all times. First, uh, he is the father of the Jewish faith as well as the Christian faith. And he stretches through history. His, uh, his impact on all believers through time uh, is set in history. He's mentioned more than 300 times in the Bible and 10 times in the book of Hebrews alone. Uh, Abraham is pointed out as a leader of faith. And that's the second reason he's so important to us as people of faith. Uh, the Bible teaches, in particular the Apostle Paul and the book of Hebrews, point back to Abraham as the one who stepped out in faith. He is the, the uh, illustration, the, the, the ideal of being saved by faith, not by works. See, in, in the Jewish mind, Moses established the law, and Christians understand that too. Moses, a great leader of the faith, led the people out of Egypt and established the law, which led to Judaism itself. But the Apostle Paul teaches for Christians, we need to grasp that our faith doesn't go back to Moses, it goes back to Abraham, because it was Abraham who was the first man of faith that trusted God for salvation. And the Bible says that God applied his faith as righteousness. That is to say, he was saved in Christ before he knew who Christ was, because he trusted God and God alone for his righteousness. So in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, we pick up in verse 8 as the writer points to Abraham in the legacy of heroes of our faith as one who by faith followed God and trusted God for what he could not see. Now look there with me, Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8, this is what the Bible says. The writer continues that litany of by faith in this roll call of faith. And he says, by faith Abraham... When he was called, obeyed, and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Last week, we considered Noah. We saw that the book of Hebrews is drawing this thread of faith through different people who took action on God's word and God's promise. Their faith, their trusting God for what they could not see, was displayed in their obedience. Noah, in particular, as we learned, never says anything in the Bible until after the ark has already been docked on dry ground. Otherwise, his whole conversation with God is one-sided. It's God telling him what to do in the book of Genesis and him obeying what God wants him to do. Uh, so that you know, obedience becomes a hallmark of the person who trusts God for what they cannot see. So the writer of the Hebrews naturally points out Abraham because Abraham takes action 
in his faith. He, he trusts God for what he cannot see and therefore obeys God. That's what we want to focus on for a few minutes this morning. Obedient faith. Obedient faith. And we're going to see that faith that trusts God for what we cannot see always produces obedience. Always. Trusting God for what you cannot see always produces obedience. It's not a passive faith. It's not a sit back and be a spectator kind of faith. It's the kind of faith in which God reaches out to you and stretches you and calls you to believe him for greater things that you cannot see at the moment, but you believe God knows what he's saying. You believe God's promise. You follow God into the future or maybe just into the moment. You act on what God's telling you to do in your relationships with your finances, uh, in your service to him, but you believe him for what you cannot see and that belief produces obedience. So this morning I want to go back to these few verses and what we're going to see are three characteristics of that obedience. What kind of obedience is produced when you trust God for what you cannot see and you believe God and act on what God tells you to do? So look at this with me. First of all, trusting God for what you cannot see, that kind of faith produces prompt obedience. It produces prompt obedience. Uh, the first thing we read is, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. Now that one sentence covers a stretch of time, but it, it means by that, it, a stretch of time in Abraham's life, but, but it's very explicit and, and specific in what it means. And the grammar means very simply, he obeyed promptly. He obeyed immediately. Much like Noah Abraham did not set out a checklist to see if God will fulfill his checklist. He didn't set out a, a pros and cons and really didn't have a conversation with God. Instead, Abraham acted on faith on what God called him to do. And, and, and the pivotal word there, called and obeyed, those two words go together. It was a turning point moment in which Abraham did what God asked him to do. It's prompt faith. Think about it this way. Delayed obedience is, is not obedience. Not really. Not if you're delaying it because it's, it, it, it's contrary to what you want. God is asking you to do something. Trust him for something that you say, no, God, I, I got to see what you're doing. But faith that trusts God for what you cannot see is prompt. And it produces prompt obedience and reacts to what God says. That, that's what God wants us to do. Describing this passage right here, one writer said the be a good way to translate it is that Abraham responded while the call was still ringing in his ears. Wow, what a heritage, what an image of faith. As soon as God spoke the words, he was packing his bags and getting ready to go to where God told him to go. And we think, well, maybe God showed him everywhere he was going and what he was going to know. The, the Bible says explicitly he went to a land he did not know. A place God said, I'll show you when you get there. Right now the call is to go. And Abraham obeyed. This kind of faith produces prompt obedience. Uh, Friday and Saturday I went up to Winston-Salem to visit my mother. I had a great visit with her. Uh, and while I was coming back and, and praying and thinking about this message, I was, I was reminded uh, growing up in that community, and it's a townhouse community, which was built in a very interesting way, the road leading into the community is on the periphery. It comes in on one side, 
and then circles all the way around, and all the buildings with the townhouses are in bays. You drive off of that road. And what it creates is an effect where all of the buildings are in one long stretch, kind of like a long tube with parking lots in the middle. And right in the center of the whole community is the basketball court and the playground uh, and a pool that belongs to the community. And I remember growing up as a, as a kid, especially a preteen and teenager, many summer nights, all of us guys, a lot of kids back then in the community, all of us guys would be on the basketball court, we'd be riding our bikes on those wonderful summer evenings, uh, we'd be beating each other up, whatever came along. And that's what we did. We played flag football on the basketball court, which is always a good idea on concrete, right? We just had a great time. And then when we knew we had to go home, we would trickle in. Some of us could, could wait a while and go in at dark, which means we went in after dark. We would wait and stretch it out as long as we could. All of us except a kid named Jimmy. And I'll never forget this. It's embedded in my mind that every summer evening, we would be out having a blast, having a good time, and suddenly, out of the blue, we would hear this sheer piercing whistle that would rattle and reverberate from building to building. And, and, and you didn't have to wonder where it was coming from. Everybody knew where it was coming from. It was coming from Jimmy's house. Because Jimmy had to go home. It was time, usually kind of late in the evening, but time for Jimmy and his family to sit down to dinner and finish the evening and eat. Now, here's the interesting thing. In, I don't recall ever one time Jimmy begrudging the whistle. I don't recall him ever standing at the basketball court and saying, man, I do not want to go in. I'm having such a great... I don't recall him ever lingering, ever disobeying, ever wondering if he had to go in, ever asking one of us for an excuse. None of that. As soon as we heard the whistle, he would instantaneously drop whatever he was doing and head home. You know why? Because what was at home was better than staying with us. Yeah. He knew the meal that waited and the family time after that and the gathering around and just being with his family. That was part of summer too. And he would just drop what he was doing when he heard the whistle and he would go. Because he'd been called and it was time to obey. One of the reasons that Christians... Those of us who claim to be faithful to God, who claim to trust God for what we do not see, one of the reasons we delay obedience is because we're trying to figure out if what we want to do is better than what God wants us to do. Uh, we, we are delaying because we think this life is still about us. It's still about what we want. And we think that faith means God answering our prayers the way we want God to answer our prayers to fulfill our needs, our desires. But people who trust God for what they cannot see, people who know God well enough to know, to obey promptly, are people who have obeyed before. And they know that what comes next is better than anything they could linger and stay around and, and, and experience on their own. If you're delaying trusting God for anything, if you're wondering if you've got to work it out on your own, if you're trying to negotiate with God to do what you want him to do, pause a minute, ask his forgiveness, and just say, God, I'll trust you for what I cannot see, and I will obey you 
Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. Second, faith, trust God for what we cannot see, is faith that produces pilgrim obedience. Pilgrim obedience. The first thing we're told about Abraham in the book of Genesis, the the call of God itself starts this way in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, his name is changed later to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the Bible says in Genesis 12 that Abraham went. He went to the land God was calling him to. And then ultimately the Bible says he pitched his tent in that land and he lived as a nomad, as a pilgrim, as a sojourner in a foreign land. Uh, We read it a few minutes ago that he set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. That was the promise that he believed God for. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. Abraham never had a permanent home in the land of promise. The land of promise, or as you may, as we read it here, the promised land is Canaan. In the Bible, known to us today as Palestine. What's interesting in the Bible is, this is the only place in the Bible, by the way, that it's actually called the promised land. Everywhere else it's referred to as the land of promise, the land of milk and honey, the inheritance of, uh, of God and God's people. The promised land foreshadows a, a very particular and meaningful reality for followers of Christ. It foreshadows the fact that there is a land of promise. There is a home that awaits us. And that God's desire is to take us to that home, stage by stage, step by step, until we finally arrive in his presence. And we are home. In the meantime, the Bible teaches we are sojourners. We are pilgrims in this place. Because our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible teaches that the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, you were born again in Christ, and I'm not talking about religious people, and I'm not talking about churchgoers. I'm talking about people that have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, repented of their sins, and given their lives to Christ, and been born again by the Holy Spirit in Christ. The moment that happened, God set your citizenship in heaven. And from that point forward, you are a sojourner in this life. Now, the reason this matters so much is because of what it does for your obedience. When you understand that you're on a journey through this life, you're a citizen in heaven, a journey through this life, it sets you free to obey God. You're not tied to the things of this world any longer. You are free to obey God and to do whatever God asks, to go wherever God wants you to go. To have the relationships God has designed for you, you are free of this world and this life. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He described his own salvation and what came next in Galatians chapter 2. He said, for I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life I now live in the flesh, that meaning in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice how that starts. I have been crucified with Christ. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, I died on the cross with him. My old sinner self, tied to this world, has died. And then God gave me resurrection life that attaches me to eternity. And I serve Christ as a, in resurrection, eternal life now. But I'm not attached to this world anymore. 
We live in that in-between time. I still wear a body of the flesh. I still need money to buy groceries. I still need gas to move the car. And sometimes I need more gas for pay more money for it. I'm attached to this world that way, but still I trust God as a sojourner, a pilgrim, a nomad pitching my tent in this place. And that's what sets us free to serve him. The thing about heaven is most believers in Christ, and I would offer most of us sitting here, think of heaven this way. Heaven is where I go after I die. That's it. Heaven, I, I die, I live my life now, I go to church, I'll trust God for the basics of life. I'll live my life now. When I die, I'll go to heaven. Now, on the face of it, that's true. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, your eternal destiny is secure, you're going to heaven when you die. Here's the problem with that perspective, though. God views you as already in heaven. Yeah. The Bible says you, born again in Christ, are seated in the heavenlies with him already. The moment you trusted Christ, he started seeing your service to him on earth, which is why you're still here to serve him. Your service to him on earth, he sees from his eternal perspective. And when you trust him and then obey him on this pilgrimage, this journey, detached from the things of this life, you are set free to be used of him for the greater things of God. And you get to see him do things you would never get to see him do through you if you just set up your stakes and say, I'm permanently here until I go home to heaven. God decides when we go home. That's not our choice. But in the meantime, we are free in faith to obey and to serve him. And he uses us when we trust him and obey him. It's a pilgrimage you're on now. Show me a believer who doesn't understand that they've been set free from this world. And I'll show you a believer that worries about everything, that struggles to make ends meet, that thinks faith is about God giving them what they want. But show me a believer that has grasped the reality, as Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. That believer is set free of worry, that believer is set free of temptation. That believer can serve Christ faithfully in the time we have left, however long God decides. Because they understand they're already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And God just has them here to trust him, to obey him, so he can use that believer to impact their world for Jesus Christ. Faith that trusts God for what we cannot see produces pilgrim faith. This past Wednesday marked 208 years since the British burned Washington, during uh, Washington, D.C. during uh, the War of 1812. It was August 24th, 1814. Uh, the British troops invaded Washington and burned the Capitol and burned the White House. President James Madison and his wife Dolly Madison fled from the White House just as the British we're laying siege to it, and they burned the White House. For the rest of his tenure as president, James Madison never lived in the White House again, but he was still president. He could function as president. He could do whatever he needed to do as president. He could lead the nation as president because he knew his tenure as president was not tied to the White House. It was tied to who he is. 
Your tenure on planet earth is not tied to this earth. It's tied to who you are in Christ. You are a servant of God. Trust him for what you cannot see and watch him work through you to do things greater than you could ever imagine. It's a pilgrim obedience that gets to see God work. Then last, that faith that trusts God for what we cannot see produces a patient obedience. A patient obedience. It's not that obedience that says, God, I need it, and I need it right now. God, I need an answer. I need that answer right now. It's, it's obedience that says, God, I will trust you in the long run, <clears throat> whatever you decide to do, however long it takes. God, I trust you for what I cannot see. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to a land he'd never been to, didn't give him a road map, didn't give him GPS, didn't give him the coordinates, just said, go, and I'll let you know when you get there. 25, and he gave him the promise. The continuation of the promise <clears throat> is that he would be able, he would be the, the origin, he would be the man of faith. And out of him, a whole nation would come. That God was going to use Abraham and his wife Sarah to produce a whole nation. And that nation would bless the rest of the world. Imagine that in Abraham's eyes, his vision of faith, seeing that. Here he is, 75 years old. He says, well, that's got to be soon because me and Sarah are kind of old. 25 years later, Isaac comes along. And maybe Abraham thought, well, now finally, the land will be my land. The land of promise, God will give that to us. No, it was longer and lo generations passed before Abraham's descendants received the land of promise. But what mattered was Abraham believed and trusted God for what he could not see right then in his life. And he let God worry about the rest. He let God worry about the future. He practiced a patient obedience that believed God for what he could not see. Verse 10 puts it this way. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The phrase looking forward to means having expectation or anticipation. He was looking ahead to what he could not see, but he believed that the land of promise foreshadowed what he could not see. That principle is threaded through Scripture. The call for a place of our own. And then we are taught that finally and forever that call for a place of our own will be the place that God builds for us. It'll be heaven itself. It'll be the new heaven and the new earth. And Abraham even had that in the back of his mind. He had that in the front of his imagination and in the heart of his faith. He anticipated that God was building a place. And for the most part, he may have thought that city, that place, that dwelling would be in this land of promise. But as time went along, he realized in his patient obedience that that promise would be fulfilled later and that God would be building for him another place. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, this principle comes to light. And it's the principle that for all of these believers, trusting God for what they could not see meant trusting God for the glory that lay ahead, for the home they would have in heaven, for coming home to him and being detached from this world and knowing that one day, someday, God's promises would all be fulfilled, if not in this life, in the next. And God's promise will always be fulfilled. Jesus put the same principle this way. He said, I go and prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, you can know this. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. But in the meantime, live by faith in this life. Trust God for what you cannot see. Believe, Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. Know that what I'm telling you is true. Be patient in your faith and your obedience and know that God knows where you're going, what you're doing, and your heart, your desire to see God work will one day be completely fulfilled. And your, your desire to be home, to have a place called home, will one day be perfectly fulfilled in glory with Him. I like to remind people, have you ever wondered why it is we, we talk about home? Why it is we even have homesickness? Why is that? Why do we care? It's because we're not home yet. We're not there yet. And God is preparing a place for you and for me. So in the meantime, we live for him in this life. We live by faith and trust him for what we cannot see. And when he calls us to act on that faith, we obey promptly because we believe him and we believe his promises, what lie ahead. Uh, I have a story I like to tell. Many of you have heard it. Some of you have not. I want to tell it again because it's a reminder of my own life of these great truths of how God works uh, in our obedience and our faith to bring about the conclusion that he is desiring. And, and when we obey him, when we listen to him, we'll see that conclusion come about. It's also a reminder of the importance of our legacy of faith, that you sitting right here can aspire to a legacy of faith where we impact people, other people, and remind them to always trust Christ. In 1992, Kim and I, and now Caitlin, who was a baby at the time, living in Texas still in Fort Worth, I was at a state in my education where I could leave. We had really had no ties any longer to Texas, to be in Texas. So we were praying and wondering and thinking about what to do. And 1992 turned into January and February and, and no clear move from God, no clear direction from God. And people started telling us, what you need to do is pack up and move back to North Carolina. Just pack up and move back to North Carolina. We even had well-meaning family members say, come on, you just stay with us. And, and, and you, can, you can stay here, and, uh, and from here, God will guide you. The problem was, God kept telling us, no. Day by day, no. Stay put. Stay put. Stay put. I was working in maintenance for Nations Bank. Came Bank of America. I was teaching part time at the cemetery. cemetery seminary. <laughs> I tell you, those were good days. <laughs> and God just kept saying no. Well-meaning people reaching out. A lot of people telling us. A friend of mine was doing that. He said, "Hey, I'm leaving, man. We're out of here, going back to my home state. Going to see where God opens up there." But God kept telling us no. Kept telling us stay put. Stay put. Stay put. Winter turned to spring. Then early in summer, one morning I got up, had my quiet time, and God said, go. And I said, what? And God said, go. You need to pack up. Suddenly I had absolute liberty in packing up and moving my little family back to North Carolina. And see, part of it was, too, I kind of had in the back of my mind that, that from Texas, we would go somewhere exotic for ministry. You know, God would call us to a tough place, take us to, to China or Antarctica or Idaho. I don't know. But back to North Carolina, come on. 
I mean, what, that, that just sounded too, but that was what he was saying. And Kim felt the same way. And we were praying, we were thinking, what are we supposed to do? And I sought, as the Bible teaches, I sought wise counsel. And I went to a friend of mine who was a pre professor at the seminary, great man of God, still a good friend, have great respect for him. And, and it's, it's important, by the way, to know that at this point, I was ready to write my doctoral dissertation. That's kind of an important part of the story. That's why I had the liberty to leave. No more classes. So I went and sat down with him, told him what God was doing, tell him what we felt. What do you think I should do? He said, do not go. You need to stay here or you will never finish your doctorate. I was surprised, but I, I took it to heart. He was looking at it from a very practical way, and he said, you need to stay here, just go ahead and get it finished, and then go, if that's what you need to do. So I wrestled with that a couple of days. Then I went to see my pastor, also a good friend, man of God, highly respect, one of the truly great preachers I've ever sat under. Made an appointment, went to see him, told him the same dilemma, and did not tell him I'd spoken to the other mentor in my faith, but was talking to him. And he said, well, I'll tell you the truth, Bob, uh, I don't really know. He said, I think that, it's either, that either thing is an act of faith. You need to do what you feel like is God is leading you to do, but I see no harm in either one. If you stay, finish your doctorate, then go or go now. But I don't, I don't, let me just pray with you, which was good. Let me pray with you, I'll tell you what to do. Or tell you, you do what you think God wants you to do. Still left there burdened, not terribly satisfied, and discontent and struggling with what we should do. Went home, Kim and I continued to pray, think about it. And a couple of days later, I was at the seminary in the Department of Theology where I had all my classes, and I was walking through the corridor where the professors had their uh, offices, and I came across the office of Dr. John Newport, who was a mentor of mine and also my major professor for the last three years in the doctoral program. And his door was open, so I knocked on his door and said, Dr. Newport, can I ask you, can I come in and talk to you? He'd ask you a question, get your advice. He said, sure. So I sat down, and he was, his, his office, his desk was front and center toward the door because everything else was books. There was nowhere to walk, hardly anywhere to move around. Everything else was books stacked up, and he was sitting there reading a book. He said, sit down and tell me what's on your mind. So I told him the same thing I just told you without telling him about the other conversations. I just told him, what, what do you think I should do? God, I said, God has it on our hearts to go. We're concerned about finishing if we go. What should we do? And Dr. Newport had a way of squinting when he was thinking. And he took off his glasses and he leaned across his desk and he squinted at me and he said, go, go. Now he was an elder statesman at the seminary even at that time. He was a man of God, a man of faith, two doctorates, three pastoral ministries behind him, had taught at three universities and two seminaries and been the provost of one of those. And he leaned across that desk and he said, Bob, the greatest times in my life has been when I have trusted God and I went on faith. Go, don't stay, we'll help you finish, but go, okay. And he was more excited about it than I was. Not long ago, I was rifling through and cleaning out some papers and scanning in some things I wanted to keep and found letters from John Newport. It's an interesting thing about people of God that are seasoned, that leave a legacy of faith, those heroes in your faith. <laughs> Every time I ever wrote to him until he passed away several years ago, he always wrote me back. And every letter was handwritten, and every letter was encouraging, 
And every letter was about Jesus. Go. Because you never know what God's going to do. That's why he's calling you. That's why he's asking you to trust him for what you cannot see. Maybe it's not leaving Shalot. Maybe it's trusting him with the burden right in front of you. God, I cannot see a way out of this. Well, trust him for what you cannot see. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your food. Maybe it's your job. Trust him for what you cannot see. And obey what he tells you to do. And watch God work. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Believers, I'm going to pray for us this morning. I'm going to pray that our faith will be renewed and stronger and, and revived just to trust God for what we cannot see and obey God in what he's telling us to do. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know that God has a call on your heart. Taking that next step of faith, whatever God is calling you to do. And I'm going to pray for you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, in-house or at home, or maybe it's time to rededicate your life to Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer with you also to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Heavenly Father, God, sometimes we get burdened by our, our indecision. We get burdened, God, because of our lack of faith. We get burdened, Father, because we forget. You'll always take care of us. No matter what comes next, you're always there, and you'll always take care of us. God, this morning I pray for these in this room and those at home, Father, that may be facing a tough decision, may be facing an uncertain future, may be struggling with something right now in the moment. Maybe it's finances, family, decisions, God, uncertainty, jobs, whatever it is, Father. I pray, God, that first you would forgive us for not trusting you. I pray, second, God, you would reignite our faith. You would, you would lift that burden and give us that liberty to trust you, God, for what we cannot see, to believe you, God, that you'll take care of us. And next, God, I pray we would obey you. Father, if there is a call to obedience on our hearts, God, forgive us for not promptly obeying. And God, may we go do what you're calling us to do so you can work through us to bless others. Father, we don't know what comes next. We don't know what's out there. We, we might know bits and pieces of it, but we don't know everything. But God, we know that you do. And more importantly, we know you. And God, we trust you today. I pray for those who need Christ as their Savior. I pray, God, today they would put all their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Praying a prayer of faith that goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. I've been religious. I've been a churchgoer. But I know I need Christ in my life. And I pray, God, today you would forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and he's alive today. So I ask in faith that Christ would forgive me and come into my life and into my heart and give me that home in heaven that I could serve you faithfully and by faith the rest of my life. Father, for whatever decisions we've made, God, I pray you would bless and be with us. Help us to follow through with those decisions this morning, That's those steps of faith, and whatever you've called us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.